All right, welcome everybody to Moscow Mules and Knob Slides. Uh, this is our OTPGH speaker series. Um, the conference is running October 9th. Um, and, you know, we've had an opportunity to talk to a few of the speakers along the way. So we kind of want to introduce, you're going to be listening to these ideally before the conference to kind of get a little more insight about the speakers, who they are, what they're kind of talking about. Um, and then that maybe that'll help with the Q&A during the conference or any things that might come up along the way. But um, I'm one of your hosts, Kyle. I'm your host, David. Our special guest this week is Alan. Alan, how are you? I'm doing great. Great to be here. Thank you for uh, coming on again. Like I just said before, we hit the uh, record button, even though we've been recording. But um, and I've already highlighted what we're kind of already doing about this speaker series. But Alan's one of the uh, few people that we're able to wrangle up and, and get on for a little bit to kind of just hear about more about who you are. And you know, maybe I'll flip it on its head this time. We've been asking everybody to talk about who they are, but maybe you can start out with like some teasers about your talk. Sure. So I'm really excited about a small revolution we're trying to create and how all software is made and sold. And the pitch is pretty simple. Uh, you go to the store, you buy a piece of candy, comes with a list of ingredients. Why don't we expect that bare minimum of the most important software in our lives? Uh, we have no idea what the third party dependencies are in general, unless we have a very good process for what we're building and certainly not for what we're buying and running today. And so the idea of a software bill of materials is really just the basics of transparency into the software supply chain. It can make things better for software assurance, better for supply chain management, and hopefully drive some quality further up the supply chain, starting to improve, uh, create some incentives to build better software, buy better software, and have more secure open source. Is the, is the idea for... Um a software bill of materials, like a, like a pre-existing thing. I'm not familiar with anything along that, that line is, or is this, uh, you know, some research you've, you've built off of before? Mm -hmm. So it is on one hand, it's a very old idea. Uh, a software bill of material derives its name from a bill of materials, which is part of the modern manufacturing revolution, uh, that started in the post-war Japan and moved forward, uh, which is to say, Hey, if you're building something, you need to pay attention to what the pieces are. Right. If you're building a serious widget, you need to say, well, I need so much of this stuff and so much of this stuff. And that way I can start to pitch where things come from. Uh, it's kind of weird that we don't have that in software, even though software is built from similar small components, right? No one goes and writes their own software out of one whole cloth these days. Even if you're doing, you know, firmware at very low level, you're going to be using pre-existing components. The challenge is, Lots of those are going to have vulnerabilities. Some of those are going to have actively exploited vulnerabilities. Uh, and some of them are just going to be out of date or risky uh, or have licensing issues, right? There's a lot of other reasons other than security why we want to track this stuff. So the idea is old. It's been kicking around for a while. Uh, and in fact, was even proposed in regulation six or seven years ago. Uh, but it never really took off. And I think part of, we can talk about why it hasn't happened, but a big part of it is just to succeed, it's a chicken and egg problem where no one's asking for it, so no one's supplying it, no one's supplying it, so no one's asking for it. And so our vision uh, in the US government was to say, let's bring both sides together. Let's bring the supply side and the demand side together and actually talk about what a vision looks like that we can all live with, especially without trying to solve the whole thing at once. Uh, you know, crawl, walk, run approach. Yeah, that was going to be kind of one of my one of my thoughts. Where you're you're talking about, you know, what, what do you do 
when you you don't know that your phone is five years old and you know you you, you the, the vendor doesn't provide updates anymore you have the cat the automatic pet food feeder that goes out of business and now you don't get a patch for it how are you supposed to know what you're supposed like is my device still safe how do i know you know should i unplug it do I need to buy a new cat instead of a cat? Do I buy a dog instead? Uh, it's it's really an interesting problem to even even consider and think about because it's only like you have food, you have food, you know what the ingredients in your food, uh, you know exactly just you had just talked about um, you know what's in anything that you build pretty much like what's the composition of it, but why not software? And and to use a bit of jargon, uh, let's use this ingredient analogy. Mm-hmm. Um, there are lots of ingredients, a list of ingredients doesn't force you to do anything. What it does, it enables the famous risk-based management approach, right? It allows someone who cares about it and has a mature enough process to say, okay, I now think about this. So, you know, does, is on this list of ingredients. So I, I like to use the analogy of a Twinkie. Um, uh-huh. Twinkies aren't vegetarian. Uh, there's beef tallow in Twinkies. Uh, and in fact, when I gave a talk at uh, Beatside San Francisco, I put, the, put up a picture of the, the Twinkies ingredients. Now, many of us may not care. We just want a delicious and non-degradable snack. Uh, <laughs> non-degradable. But. but <laughs> nuclear Holocaust proof. Yes, exactly, yes. right. You, you need something that's going to stand the test of time, whether yes. on your pantry or in your gut. But we all know people that have dietary restrictions. And the point is to create a norm, a market practice where that data is available so that everyone can make the decision that's right for them. So here's what I can probably tell those real listeners who don't know me, that I work for the US government. Uh, But our vision here isn't to say, we want this one solution. In fact, it's quite the opposite. We don't have a vested interest in what the solution is. We just want there to be a solution that the market can use and that the community, defined very broadly, uh, embraces and can build on. Do you see that being like, do you see any pushback from market at all? uh, You know, when we first started this initiative, uh, I actually avoided using the term SBOM. Uh, because it had been used in proposed regulation and was seen as a little toxic uh, by certain folks in in industry, especially in sort of the lobbying class. Uh, And in fact, the first meeting that we hosted uh, in DC in, in, uh, gosh, it was uh, in 2018, so we've been at this for two years now, uh, folks showed up to try to stop us. In in fact, one of my favorite things is uh, from inside the same company, there'd be someone from the product security team was like, yeah, we want this. We need this. We want certain features for it to make it better. Uh, and then the lobbyist from that company was also like, oh, this is a terrible idea. We, we can't have this. Um, and some of it I totally understand, right? DC lobbyists' job is to prevent government from doing stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's also right, some reasons why this hasn't been happening. Uh, you know, a lot of it is around software licensing until very recent. So, you know, there are certain types of open source licenses where you have to be very careful of what you're using and what you're not using. Uh, and there's something called the GPL license or GPL, uh, which uh, for those of you who are old enough to remember the, the old days of Microsoft being worried about open source back in the 90s, 
um, right? This was the stuff that was going to take over the world. And of course, they were right. Open source did take over the world, um, and which is great. But it still means that folks need to be very careful about acknowledging what software these are going to what licensing. Mm-hmm. Until very recently, I don't even know how many of the biggest and, and most sophisticated companies were keeping careful track of their open source licenses. I think today that's a much better understood risk. They're off the shelf solutions and things like that. I mean, uh, even to be fair, I, I worked for a company that had a product and then like I'd be, when I was doing some maintenance on it, like I had access to all like the, the you know, keys to the kingdom. I was like, huh, I didn't know they were using that open source software. Yep. And you're like, well, hopefully no one else finds out about that. Cause like, I'm not sure like that was released anywhere. Like the knowledge of that fact, right. Or whatever. So th- there are also some bad reasons to oppose this idea. Uh, you know, one of the things that we kind of roll our eyes at in the security research community is some people who, especially those who, who don't understand attack patterns say, well, if you tell people what open source you're using, aren't you going to give a roadmap to the attackers? Aren't you going to help the attackers? And there are a couple of responses here. Like one is if I give you the list of ingredients that doesn't tell you how to make a Twinkie, uh, right? There's still a huge difference between what the components are and how it's built. So you're not really giving away precious intellectual property. But more importantly, when we talk about bad guys, it's 2020 guys, we threat model, right? So if you're dealing with a sophisticated adversary who wants to go after your you know, healthcare device or your industrial control system, it doesn't require that much work to do reverse engineering, to do a source composition analysis tool, right? Anyone can write a simple, basic source composition analysis tool, right? They're, they're very sophisticated ones in the marketplace, but this is something that a master's degree in computer science can get done. Right, well, I mean, you don't even have to go that far. You can just go on uh, eBay and just buy one, right? You, you buy one <laughs> and buy, buy one do your own analysis. Well, but I think that, in that, that gets to the point, which is uh-huh. the, the sophisticated adversaries can get a hold of the software and can do a full reverse engineering, right? Jidra's open source. And you're, so this isn't really helping them that much. And your unsophisticated adversary, uh, right? Your, your ransomware gang or your skiddies, well, they're just doing spray and pray. And so they don't care about your bill of materials. They just, when anything that they can access, they're just going to, you know, throw the toolkit at it. Yeah, And really there, what we need is to your analogy of, you know, saying this is out of support is to help give the roadmap, the defender mm-hmm. saying what's, what's on my network so that I'm prepared when there is an exploit in the wild, I can figure out if I'm at risk. So we all know that one of the basic steps of all defensive security is asset management, right? You can't defend what you don't know about. You can think of this as just the next layer in the maturity model for asset management, which is not only do you need to know what boxes you have, but for any non-commodity box, right? I'm not talking your Windows Active Directory box, but I'm talking anything that's got any slight amount of non-traditional software. The risk isn't going to be, you know, the thing that's going to have a CVE in it. It's going to be you're using an open source library that's got a CVE against it that an attacker can use. So how, how do you see a, a net defender being able to to manage their system? Like if you have a box that you need on your on your network mm-hmm. and it has a CVE for a, a licensed software product that doesn't have a patch to it, 
mm-hmm. what's the, what's the expectation for the for the uh, user of that sure. product? So this is a great question. Let's let's walk through the entire ecosystem instead of starting with the user. I'm going to start with the, the open source. So first is right, just helping folks realize where this open source or commercial mm-hmm. component is being used. Right. So it's not the end use. Um, and, and this is where having this transparency downstream is going to be key, where if I am a uh, open source, uh, I, I run an open source project, I found a vulnerability, I fixed a vulnerability. Now I can go downstream and say, hey, to all my users, by the way, you need to update this because mm-hmm. I fixed something important. With an SBOM, it's easier for me to find them and for them to find out that there is, in fact, uh, a flaw and a patch available. Now let's go back all the way down to the end user on Team Blue and say, okay, there is a vulnerability that was just announced. Maybe a patch is available, maybe it's not. Maybe a patch is available, but it's a pain. It's going to break stuff. Mm-hmm. I can now, even without a patch, take other defensive actions. I can tune my IDS. I can reach out to my threat intel people and say, hey, I'm not going to touch this box because it's just too expensive. Uh, but now your job is to find out anything that's in the wild. I can segment my network. There are all sorts of things that I can do that I'm, to be, you know, famous cliche, to be forewarned is to be forearmed. I can now be better prepared and integrate this into my risk package. I mean, that sounds like, I mean, the, isn't it sort of like that uh, other cliche word, like cyber hygiene, right? Keeping yourself like... Like, yeah, I mean, it's like, you know, I think it came into the whole, was it the Ripple 20 with a packet injection? Everybody's like, well, you're, if you have a good firewall in place, it should drop the packet in the first place and that shouldn't even get through, right? Like the same idea. If you have the, again, another cliche, layers of defense, you should at least protect yourself enough. And, and right, I don't want to say that SBOM is going to solve all of our problems, but I think the key aspect here is it's one more piece of data that allows us to help make these trade-offs where I can say, you know what, for efficiency's sake, I've got a hardened box, I'm gonna put it at the edge of my network. Oh look, my hardened box now is built on a uh, out-of-date crypto library. I'm gonna pull that in, I'm gonna add another layer to my perimeter, I'm gonna do whatever I need to do uh, to think about this. Um, What I like about this is it integrates well into the modern approach to development, right? It's really hard to say you've got a good CI/CD process if you're not tracking what your components are. Um, and in fact, as a market signal, because I, my background's in, in tech and cryptography, but my PhD is actually in, in applied economics. So I'm all about the market signals. Uh, so I want more people to start asking for this because if you can't produce this, it means you probably don't have the most developed, uh, the, the most sophisticated development process. Uh, but it's also something that we can push on for those of us in the legacy tech world. We can say, listen, I don't expect you to have a CI/CD shop if you're making jet engines. It'd be lovely if you could, but we know you got a lot of other things going on. Here's something that helps the entire community share the risk if we can share this software bill of materials. So that you, you kind of highlighted something, yeah, and I'm going to like flip a little bit is, can you explain how did you get here in your career? Like kind of touch on your, like your background. You kind of hit on a few points, but like how did you end up doing what you're doing now? Do, oh, uh, you, know, you can talk about whatever you want to talk about sure. in that sense. Uh, so I started off as a computer scientist, uh, wannabe cypherpunk. Uh, wasn't good enough to write code for a living. Wasn't smart enough to write pr- proofs for a living. And um, ended up getting my PhD in not real economics, but applied economics and policy. 
And that means I'm not really a computer scientist, I'm not really an economist, and I'm not really a computational modeler. And when you're mediocre at that many different things, you tend to end up in Washington, D.C. Uh, <laughs> so I, I came down here uh, uh, almost uh, over 10 years ago uh, to join a think tank called the Brookings Institution, set up their cybersecurity policy program. And this really was, you know, back in 2010, uh, security was a very new issue in the policy world. Uh, and it was a lot of fun being sort of a bridge between the tech and the policy space. Um, and as that slowly matured, more people in D.C. started to do that, uh, a mentor came along and said, hey, instead of just writing papers about this stuff, do you want to try to roll up your sleeves and do it? And with a challenge like that, uh, it was hard to say no. And so I joined government uh, five years ago. Uh, and I'm in the Department of Commerce, and which is kind of fun because, again, we talk a lot about a market failure in security. Uh, and... That used to be a revolutionary idea. And now I think it's something that everyone gets, but we're not really much closer to a solution. And so at the Department of Commerce, my job is to identify what are some of these areas where we may not be to solve everything, but we can help the market become a little more functional in, in different areas of the software and, and, and the internet world. It sounds to me like you're really well plugged in and like uh, you, you have a very diverse background that has the ability to solve this problem or at least push a solution forward that is a good idea because to me like a software bill of materials is a good idea you're you know 20 minute elevator pitch here you know you didn't really have to sell me that hard but i'm i'm on board for it i think it's a great idea so uh i don't know thanks thanks for your work on that i guess I've, some, <laughs> someone's got to do it and you don't know who the people are that actually do it right well and, you and, oh. and i'll say where do you think you are in the process are you, i mean like are you 75 percent of the way there you think you know to the you know the i guess market acceptance you know uh, that's that's one of the core questions uh because a lot of my job has been just to be really persistent and not shut up so people say well maybe if we do this he'll go away uh <laughs> but the squeaky wheel gets I, I think um you know the vision is that this should become just another boring part of security right this mm -hmm. shouldn't be a unique freestanding idea it should just be integrated into the same way that vulnerability management is part of our, our natural day-to-day -day thinking and we don't really, no one wonders how CVEs work. We just know that they, they do and we're trying to improve them. Um, and so what we, we've managed to get the basics of the idea down. Uh, we now have sort of the shared, really global vision, right? It's, it's, this is something that crosses sectors. Uh, we've got participation around the world, uh, UK, Netherlands, Germany, Japan really has been active in this. Um, we've got the vision. We're rolling out the model. And now it's really getting this implemented. So we've got uh, some live proof of concept work that's been happening for the last two years inside the healthcare sector. Uh, and this is something I'm really happy about, that in the middle of the world's worst public health crisis, this remains a top priority for both some of the best hospitals in America and uh, some of the uh, biggest medical device manufacturers. Uh, this is really something that they're pushing. Yeah. Uh, and we're seeing this in finance and energy and other sectors are starting to say, we're not going to adopt this full stop immediately, but we're trying it to see how it works for us. 
I, I'm kind of glad you said that that you're having the trial run with like healthcare. Something that means something. Like the impact is so much higher as opposed to like, yeah, we got some router companies. Not then pick on them, but like you know, we got some router companies to try us out. Like where you're like, oh, okay, but now you're like, healthcare is really kind of bought into it, right? Which is, a, I think, the huge impact that comes out of it. Pretty important. Yeah, I would say so. <laughs> No, and I think the right, it won't work unless we get the big tech guys, but the, uh, what we wanted to make sure is that we weren't building a solution that only the big tech guys would use mm -hmm. because the real value of this is going to be in, you know, not the name brand Silicon Valley companies that again, they already have their own CVEs against them. They, they know this stuff. It's going to be for the, the blinking boxes that actually make the world run that may be insecure, but we don't know about because there isn't a specific warning for that company. Yep. That's good. I, I'm, yeah. I'm on board still. Yeah. Do you, I mean, what, what do you see is like the biggest, I mean, before we wrap up, I don't, I don't know. I, Kyle usually calls time, but uh, I don't want getting, you to give I mean, away too, I don't want you yeah, to give away too much of your, uh, your, your talk here, but like, what do you see as like the biggest roadblock uh, left or like, what, what, I don't know, anything in the way mm -hmm. uh, going forward in the near term? Uh, so that's a great question. What we don't have today and we're just starting to work on as a community is the playbook. What I don't have is if a CISO comes to me and says, Alan, I've heard the podcast. I love this. I want this. What do I do? I don't have the easy set of instructions to say, do this, right? I don't have the choose your own adventure. If you have this type of company, this type of process is, um, because that is going to be common at Torque. It's going, there, there's not going to be a single solution, uh, but we're going to get there. Uh, and, and so that's going to be the big phase moving forward. And then the, the other approach is more people asking for it. Uh, and so one of the next things that we're going to be working on is draft contract language because, hey, you know what? If you're buying a couple hundred thousand, a couple million bucks of software embedded devices, it doesn't hurt to ask. Uh, and one of my favorite stories to tell is uh, a chunk of uh, the Bank of America used to ask for this. In fact, I think they, they still do. And the approach isn't that they necessarily would be able to use this data. Right? They, they didn't assume this was before we had brought the community together and identified the different standards and things like that. But if you couldn't provide this data, the bank knew that the cost of running your software was going to be higher enough because it just wasn't, it was unlikely to be good software that they were going to ask five to 10% off your asking price. So that's putting it in real dollars and cents price. Oh. So and somebody sat around and thought about that there was a cost or a hidden cost to running crappy or, you know, yep. uh, actually he's a, he's, software. A, he's, a, he's a brilliant guy. That's awesome. You. Uh, who's, who's given some great talks these days. Uh, so you guys should check him out. Uh, Sunil U, S-O-U-N-I-L-Y-U. Um, he's the guy who came up with that idea, which is just, this is a great market signal of not just security, but quality, which translates into dollars and cents. And all of us in the business world, that's at the end of the day what we're doing is we need to be able to translate security back into the bottom line. This is a great way to do it. That's an interesting thought, and I'd like to pick more on that someday, because that's nothing I ever uh, really thought of myself. That, you know. I mean, yeah, I figured someone had to put a cost to it, and it's that's interesting that someone's actually doing it. Doing it, right? <laughs> You're right. Like you said, it's always the bottom up. I mean, that's, that's, I mean, I think that's a great 
a way to sort of, you know, cap this, you know, this mini series off. I'd love to have you back, as I said earlier on, and really dive into this more. I know I could have at least two or three drinks listen to, you know, you describe it. <laughs> Tell, oh, absolutely. I mean, doing, the, you know, some embedded device analysis, like, in, you know, that David and I have done, ripping apart stuff, you're always like, man, why are they, why is this a brand new version of software? And you have, you know, open source software, but they're using like, not even the newest version of the package. You're like, I, I was mind blown because like, if they just take a second to look to say, huh, this, this version has like 10 CVEs. And like you said, not all of them might be exploitable. But you're still like, why are you putting insecure software in when the new version has zero, right? Or, you know what I mean? You know, yeah. uh, I'm sure that helps, helps your cause. So in, in that way, but uh, Alan, appreciate it. Thank you very much. Look forward to hearing your talk uh, on uh, October 9th. Thanks for your time. And uh, hopefully next time I'll be able to get up to Pittsburgh to uh, see folks in person. I know, right? Uh, one of these days. One of these days. <laughs> it's coming. I mean, seven months, right? We're just, we're about to turn the corner. I can feel it. <laughs> <laughs> no comment. <laughs> <laughs> one of these days. Well, thank you again. All right. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, thank you, Alan. Really appreciate Thanks it. Thanks for your time. Bye-bye. Cheers.